Confusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism, the dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Dr. Bernard Robertson-Dunn from the Australian Privacy Foundation returns to talk about electronic health records. But first up, here's the news. Grow your own rocket fuel! Researchers at Robo University, Nijmegen in the Netherlands, have found the mechanism that a type of bacteria uses to turn ammonia from urine into rocket fuel hydrazine. It's been known since about 1990 that some bacteria can convert ammonia from sewage into more useful compounds, but now that we know how they do it, we can look into how to use them more effectively. Animox bacteria Cuenia stuttgartiensis feed on ammonium and nitrite, then digest them into nitrogen gas without the need for oxygen, making hydrazine rocket fuel as one step on the way. If you are a colony of bacteria converting ammonium to rocket fuel, perhaps you'd only survive if you are anaerobic. You dare not use oxygen, because as soon as you'd made the unstable rocket fuel, any oxygen might ignite it, and you wouldn't be around to reproduce. Their genome was first sequenced in 2006 by Professor Mike Jetton. He predicted they would make hydrazine rocket fuel as part of their digestive cycle. And now, 10 years later, he and his team have confirmed his prediction and found the hydrazine synthase protein complex responsible. His colleagues at the Max Planck Institute for Medical Research in Heidelberg and the Delft University of Technology described the hydrazine synthase protein complex that makes the rocket fuel in a three-dimensional model. The bacteria uses a two-step process that's similar to the industrial process for making hydrazine that was developed in 1906. However, the bacterial process is too slow to scale up for industrial production, without some genetic engineering. They published their 3D model of the protein complex in the Journal of Biological Chemistry as characterization of the Animox hydrazine dehydrogenase, a key N2-producing enzyme in the global nitrogen cycle. The enzyme, hydrazine dehydrogenase, breaks down hydrazine into nitrogen gas as the final waste product at the end of the bacteria's digestive cycle. This process creates half of the nitrogen in the atmosphere emitted from the ocean. The energy-efficient, oxygen-free process has potential applications to produce biofuels, clean up sewage sludge without the need for pumps to provide air, and provide methane. However, we probably shouldn't try to power our sewage treatment plants with rocket fuel. And to any biohackers that think this would be an interesting bacteria to play with, please remember that rocket fuel burns really quickly. The letter in the journal Nature was titled The Inner Workings of the Hydrazine Synthase Multiprotein Complex. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet 
on www.diffusionradio.com. In 2012, the Labor Australian Federal Government set up an opt-in electronic health record system. By 2015, it had cost over a billion dollars and hardly anybody had signed up, because it's not really designed to be very useful to doctors and patients. The new coalition government decided to change it to an opt-out system to force people to use it, and threw another half billion dollars at the project for them to trial the change. Dr Bernard Robertson Dunn is chairman of the Australian Privacy Foundation's Health Committee. I met him in Kibberee Park on Sydney's Milsons Point. You can occasionally hear birds and other park sounds in the background. I began by asking him, are there privacy worries about the National Electronic Health Record System? The problem with health information is that there is always privacy issues associated with it. It, health information is the most personal of all data about individuals. Now the federal government in its wisdom decided that it wanted to move towards e-health which is a very vague concept and over a period of time it decided that it would introduce a national e-health record where anybody who wanted a record in this system could register and could upload documents there were various benefits allocated to this system, one of which was if you're not close to your doctor because you're travelling or involved in an emergency, then having access to your health information would result in better health care. And that's a reasonable argument. And in the past, that argument has stood, and people have had the option since 2012 of registering for their health record and putting information into it. Now, Some characteristics of this health record system are interesting in that it is actually not a health record system that is designed to be used by healthcare practitioners at what they call the point of care. In other words, those systems that are designed to help health practitioners, they already have, and the government says that they should stick to using those systems. So the data in this My Health Record system is summary data extracted from other systems. Uh, the opt-in nature of the system has meant that it's been up to the patient and to the GP to decide if they think there's any use in having a health record and not a lot of people decided over a period of about three or four years that it was useful to have one. Now the federal government obviously had two options. One was to say, oh that's failed, um, let's scrap the whole thing but they'd spent $1.5 billion on it by then and were still firmly of the opinion that it would result in better health care and reduce costs to the federal government. So they had a review, it was called the, the Royal Review, and the outcome of that was it was recommended that the system move from opt-in to opt-out. In other words, you would be given a health record and if you didn't want one, you could decide not to have it and the federal government has undergone two trials in this area. They didn't set out to trial the usefulness of the record, they set out to trial if the registration system would work. And there's a subtle difference there. In other words, they weren't assessing the usefulness of the record, they were working out whether the way they would create the records, which is essentially by taking a health identifier, which has already been allocated to everybody based upon their Medicare number, 
creating the shell of a record and putting Medicare information into it. Medicare being, it's not really health insurance, it's a, and it's not really national insurance, but it's the government's mechanism for assisting in the funding of healthcare with doctors. So that Medicare data can go into the health record, and the federal government also has information on pharmaceuticals because it sponsors pharma, um, pharmaceuticals. And so if you get a cheap pharmacy product, they know because that is recorded and they subsidise it. So they have that data and they can tell who it's been paid, who has used the medication. And so that data, along with Medicare data, forms the shell of the new My Health Record. That in itself doesn't really create a health record because the standard process that was created for opt-in included seeing your GP, creating a nominated representative who could then put a health summary into your record and would effectively curate the information that was in your health record. So by moving to opt-out, they have created health records for people, but they're not really of any use. You still need to go to your GP. You still need to create what's called a MyGov account in order to access the health record. And MyGov is the federal government's attempt to have a single point of contact with all Australians and for Australians to link their interactions with the government. So the idea is that you create a MyGov account and you can log on to that and then go to your tax records or to your healthcare records or if you're a veteran, the Department of Veterans Affairs records, etc. Uh, this is in some ways a cunning way for the government to join all these databases together without allocating everybody a unique ID. And some years ago, the Australia card and then the access card projects were all designed to give everybody an ID number. Um, both of those were not accepted by the population and they died. But to all intents and purposes now, the federal government, if they, if you, they can identify you through one data set, can link you to other data sets, either through the MyGov account or simply by merging data sets. There's enough personal information in a lot of these data sets so that you can tell from one data set to another data set who the individuals are. Partly because name and address, if nothing else. So what sort of dangers are there with all this information being in one place on this government system that is available to all these departments that you link them to to be able to use them? A lot of the data is in different databases and is held for different purposes. The tradition in the past has been that you collect data for a particular purpose and it is a bit of a no-no to use it for other purposes. That seems to be stretched a bit. And if you obtain new information by joining data sets, are you really using data for a purpose it wasn't gathered? I suspect that's debatable. But that is what is happening now in the sense that the ABS has said that's exactly what they want to do. Data that was collected for Medicare and for the pharmaceutical benefits system is being joined with my health record data. So they are gaily joining these things together quite openly and you can see the result of these joins. Now can I just interrupt for a moment and ask you, how is this used right now to help people's health? That's a very good question and I'm not sure it ever has been. I can tell you about the intent in that the examples that the government give are if you go and see a GP, you've never seen that GP before and if you have a health record, you can tell the GP they can look up your health record and get some of your history. Yeah, that's true. But it's not as simple as that. If you haven't been to a GP for a long time, that data's old. If you've been to see multiple GPs and not all those GPs have put the data up, it's incomplete. 
So there is a valid reason that says if you have a health record that is up to date, you go to a GP or a hospital or emergency services that you've never been before, they can look you up and they can get some information about you. And that's valid. You could then ask the question, why are you giving 25-odd million Australians a health record when very few of them are actually in the situation where they need access to these things? And if you have a health record, it is really a good idea to keep it up to date so that if you do need it, it doesn't mislead people. Because if the data is not complete and accurate, it can be worse than no data at all because it can be misleading. So it could be misleading in that you could be given the wrong medication in an emergency in a hospital, for example, or from an ambulance, even if there's a misspelling in the data, for example. I've heard about cases of that overseas where women have been given prostate medicine when it was supposed to be something completely different. That's very true. Errors in data within health record systems, uh, that falls under the category of safety of these things. And yes, it does happen. Uh, and to assume that the data in a health record system is correct is foolish and the government's website in fact says so. It says you should always check and validate the data in the health record against the patient if possible. Um, which is a bit of an eye-opener which says because the implication is you can't trust the data in there. And in fact I think that's essential that you don't trust the data in there. It may be totally correct but if you're wrong it could lead to very serious health consequences especially if somebody reading a health record makes an assumption about something that isn't there, such as allergies to penicillin. Just because a health record doesn't say that a patient is allergic to something doesn't mean they're not. In fact, one of the interesting things about recording information on human beings is it's actually highly dynamic. And health record information as it stands at the moment, the, the sort of my health record system that we've got, is an automated version of manual systems where doctors write things down and they record them um, and there's all sorts of data there um, which is often taken not so much out of context but it's not in context. When you're measuring the status or behaviour of a human being it's a constantly changing system. The human body is full of rhythms, there's pulse rates, there's breathing, there's circadian rhythms, there's all sorts of things. And if you take measurements, point measurements, they're an indicator, but you really need other measurements to make sense of them. Not just the same data over a period of time, but data related to other things. Um, some fairly standard blood tests require you to fast because taking food changes the status of your body. There's lots of things like that where there's interactions between various systems within the body that if you don't understand these interactions, the data, the measurements can be totally misleading. Can I go back to some of the intention here? So if I have my gov and I have my health record, if I go to my doctor, is he going to automatically look that up and find my medical records there with my x-rays and my medical history and my prescription history there? He might, but he won't find anything that's of much use to him because most of the data that ends up in my health record started with the GP. So why would a GP use the system when he's the source of the data anyway and far more data on the patient is available in his local system? If you've had tests or x-rays, well, they're probably recorded in the system anyway. The, the danger is if you start going to multiple GPs and your data is spread out and your healthcare is spread out, 
but, but that's a nature of the Australian health system which distinguishes itself from places like the UK. The UK, the national health system, you go to one doctor and you're on his books. You can't go GP shopping. You can obviously go to Harley Street and see a, a doctor and pay money and he won't tell anybody else about your health care. But the NHS system, um, you have a doctor and you're stuck with that doctor. You can change, but you have one and one only doctor. In Australia, you can see five different GPs for five different reasons. The government will know because if it's paying its Medicare benefits, it has a list of GPs that you've used. But there's nothing illegal, nothing wrong. And in fact, that's the Australian way. I just want to come back to this. So basically, GPs are mainly not entering data into their system because they're not required to and they don't get a lot of benefit out of doing so. So these entries are mainly empty because they're not going to have your x-rays in them either unless the doctor has put them there. So that, does that mean they've only got information that you as a patient have put in? No, not, not really. In terms of health summary, your nominated representative is the one who puts the health summary in. You can put a clinical, sum, that's a clinical health summary. You can put your own personal health summary in, but I suspect most, most healthcare professionals would treat them with a degree of caution because, as Dr. House said, all patients lie. <laughs> and almost certainly they can't be trusted. They forget things, they incorrectly remember their diagnosis, all sorts of problems with the data quality of stuff. If you go to hospital and you are discharged, hospitals these days are automatically putting discharge summaries into health records. Uh, you have no control over those normally. There are provisions in the My Health Records system for blocking people putting certain data up. You can block certain institutions from seeing your health record. There are some rather crude controls over what's in there and who can see it. But generally, if a patient doesn't invoke any of these provisions, then health data can get put in there from Medicare, PBS, um, from test or, uh, organisations. So if you have an X-ray and you haven't specifically stated or they haven't asked you is it okay to put your results up on the health record system it probably will end up there and the government's trying to encourage automatic uploading of data into the my health record system the big, biggest single category of data in health record systems as of the 17th of july is discharge summaries um, whether they mean much or not i don't know but once again they're summaries they're not full health records and so the patient will have a health record. The question, who is that record best used by to produce better health outcomes? Uh, it's debatable if there's many people at all who will get some real health outcomes from using the data in a My Health Record system. It's possible that if you've had an accident and an ambulance worker looks it up and discovers something unusual about, the, about you uh, and you haven't been conscious enough to tell them, there may be benefit but $2 billion is a lot of money to pay for that sort of occasional use. And it's never been statistically proven that it is of value. So we almost all have some sort of my health record, is my understanding. It's not all linked to my gut unless we do that ourselves. And the chances are that they're empty because it's totally optional for information to go in at the moment. And it's not really to the benefit of the GPs to put it in because they don't consult it either. So if I change doctors at the moment, my health records aren't going to help me get my medical history between practices at all and they're not going to help my new doctor understand what's happened with the old doctor unless I really push my old GP to upload records 
and it's not to his benefit to do it. He just has to be kind to do it if I ask him. Uh, that's a reasonable summary in the sense that the data that goes in there, it's of, I was going to say dubious quality. No, it's variable quality because, in fact, in Australia at the moment, opt-out has been used in two trial areas, so there are four million registrations against something over 20 million people. So not everybody does have a health record. They have to m assess the results of the trial and then move to a full opt-out before everybody actually gets one. But if you are concerned about your privacy, then you have a number of options. One is, at the moment, you can opt out of registering for a health record. That's the correct terminology. In which case, one will not be created for you. If you don't opt out, or you opt in and get a health record created for you, you can never get rid of that registration. The government will keep every registration on its system. If you decide that you don't want one, it will deactivate it, it won't remove it. Anything in your record will stay there so that when you reactivate it, it all comes back. Data will not have been put into it, so it gets put into a sort of stasis. However, the data is there. If you are really, really concerned about your privacy and you discover that you have a record because you've been given it or because you opted in and didn't understand, then your options are several. You can hide data, which means the data is there but hidden, and you can then unhide it. You can delete data. So if a health summary has gone up, you can delete that and it is not there anymore and it disappears. It might be in backup files, but it's not on the system um, for recovery. You can block data being put into it. So you can say, I don't want my Medicare, I don't want my PBS data to be put in to my health record. Um, you can take steps so that you have a shell and it is almost literally empty. That's the most you can do to protect your privacy if you've got a health record. If you don't have one, don't get one, if you're really concerned. In terms of the data that's in there and its medical usefulness and who can access it, if you go to hospital at the moment, they will give you a long list of questions that you have to answer about your medical history. And if you have a really tough medical history, it can take quite a time to fill it out. And if you have a health record of some description, then that can be very useful that you don't have to remember it and don't repeat it. So I want to stress that I and the Privacy Foundation are not against health records. We're against particular implementation of health records. Health records can be very, very useful, very important. And in fact, over time, I think they're going to improve in their usefulness. But that's going to take a long time of development of systems that work out what works and how best to create these things. In fact, that's a good argument that says the current sorts of health record systems, which are essentially automated manual systems, are really totally inappropriate for modern health because you need to know far more than just somebody's blood pressure or somebody's um, B12 levels or salt levels or weight, BMI, all that sort of stuff. They're all very, very static. And in thinking about this, the data that's in health records, the first generation were paper. The second generation has been automated paper. So the access to the paper records is improved. But my health record, for instance, it's a document management system. There are documents in there. And if you want to know what's in the documents, you open the documents and you look at them. They're effectively PDFs. And as far as I know at the moment, they're not even searchable PDFs. 
So yes, it's a health record, yes there's data there, but if you're an oncologist and you're interested in information relating to a particular form of cancer, you can't just ask the health record system, show me all the data that's relevant to this disease, illness or concern. <laughs> it's not designed to do that, and hey, guess what, it can't. But they're the sorts of questions that would be really good to ask a health record system that reflected the dynamic nature of human beings, of the illnesses that they suffer, because an illness is a dynamic system as much as anything. It has a life of its own. People grow, mature and die. They change over time. Everything is dynamic. So in my opinion, health records should reflect the dynamic nature of health data, whereas paper-based systems can't because they're just not like that. That was Dr Bernard Robertson Dunn, Chairman of the Australian Privacy Foundation's Health Committee. Listen next week for the second and final part of this interview. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Check out the Patreon page at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network, including 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, and 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, then you can explore more than 850 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash Diffusion Radio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. <laughs>